Hi, this is Bill Farmer, the voice of Goofy, and you are listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to Episode 82 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, we again welcome a returning guest as we begin a new two-part interview with Laura Dickinson. Hopefully you recognize her name, but even if you don't, you've heard and enjoyed her voice if you've watched Phineas and Ferb, Sophia the First, and other shows, or if you were a fan of Groove 66 at Disney California Adventure. In the two and a half years since we first talked, Laura's been quite busy with a number of projects that will be of interest to Disney fans and music fans. In this episode, Laura talks about whether working on Sophia the First still makes her cry tears of joy, how working on Sophia is different than working on Phineas and Ferb, which she likes better and why, the Sophia the First spin-off and how her role is changing on that series, favorite things she's done on Sophia, the end of Phineas and Ferb for her, which included belting the highest note she's ever sung on TV, the challenges of theme park performing, Mickey's Detective School, live musicians in the Disney parks, preparing for and caring for her voice in harsh singing conditions, other challenging performances, working on Pitch Perfect and its sequel, why she recorded One for My Baby and what it was originally going to be instead, a peek into the process of making the album, Jazz and acapella both taking off right now and the role that she's playing in it. Her favorite big bands from the classic years. How she chose which songs and which arrangements were going to go on the album. And how arranging works and what it's like. After this part of the interview, enjoy one of the songs that Laura sings on. I'll give you a hint. It's a song that won an award. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and new friend. And then it's time to turn the page and begin this story. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Listen. Hey, hey, Skywalkers. This is Richard, and over here is my sweetie wife, Sarah. You can call me Jedi Tink. And we are Skywalking Through Neverland. Jimmy Mack here. When you wish upon a podcast, wish upon this podcast. These guys are awesome. <laughs> We are a fan-focused podcast that covers Star Wars, Disney, pop culture, and their fandom communities. The stuff that surrounds us, penetrates us, and binds us all together as instantaneous friends. What do you know? We showcase what people are doing in the world of fandom and talk to those who are involved firsthand in the universes that we love. This is Margaret Carey, Tinkerbell. This is Jeremy Bullock, Boba Fett from Star this Wars. Steve Sansweet from Rancho Obi-Wan. Hey, it's James Arnold Taylor, the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I happen to be skywalking through Neverland right and now. I'm and skywalking I am through skywalking through Neverland. And I am skywalking through Neverland. I've always hated space travel. <laughs> skywalking through Neverland is the ultimate expression of fandom. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and our website, skywalkingthroughneverland.com. 
And remember, never land on Alderaan. <laughs>
almost everybody that works on that show said says something similar to that. I joke with the composer Danny Jacob all the time that he discovered me and it it kind of gave me this street cred that I don't know if I would have without that show because the show is so loved by people around the world it's translated into all these different languages and I pretty much 99% of the time if I meet somebody that has kids they've heard my work so there will always be something special about that show for me but then Sophia I mean it was so exciting to see the show do so well right away and we were nominated for a bunch of Emmys and awards and actually won the daytime Emmy for outstanding original song for the theme song which I sang on with Ariel Winter just her and me and we were nominated for a primetime Emmy for uh, an outstanding original song from from Mystic Meadows the episode Mystic Meadows and the song Mystic Meadows if I'm not messing it up <laughs> um, <laughs> and I got to hire a group of great singers adults and kids and it just it's it's been nothing short of an adventure and it's it's changing every day my responsibilities there and now with the spinoff they're they're giving me a little bit more responsibility on the production end which I'm really excited about because working with kids in the studio is one of my passions I love vocal coaching and sharing my business advice with everybody that wants it because I don't have time in my schedule to teach and I don't have the good fortune of finding someone to marry me and have my own kids with. So I feel <laughs> like that's my way to give back and share what I have to offer with kids. And I, it's one of my favorite things to do. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, I don't think I've heard about the spinoff. It's probably been announced. I just haven't heard about it. Can you tell me about it? It was announced just recently. I think it's been within the last month and if you know about Sophia the first, you know about her magical amulet and it, it helps her when she's in times of trouble and we get to finally find out the story of the origin of the amulet. And we meet princess Elena of Avalor, who is the Disney company's first Latina princess and she is going to get her own show. And I've heard some of the music from the show, and it's excellent. And being able to have the same creative team involved on that show that's involved with Sophia the First, I think they're going to have one big hit on their hands. And it's especially exciting because the term Latina is so broad, and it encompasses so many different places all over the world and they're really trying to explore that with this series and I think it's going to be unbelievable I think it will be just as successful and popular and loved as Sophia the first is if not more it sounds like it and you know I'm just thinking out loud here but let's see Phineas and Ferb hit show you were singing on it <laughs> uh Jake and the Neverland Pirates hit show you were singing on it Sophia the first hit show you were singing on it <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. There's there's a commonality between these shows. Oh, Sounds like it's you. Andy, you're the best. I need more of you in my life. <laughs> well, you know how to get a hold of me anytime. I do. You're teaching me all about Skype and the magic of recording over the internet. It's exciting. 
It is. I think we have a better connection this time than we did last time. So this is going to sound a lot better for the audience. And my skills with the show have gotten better. So Definitely. And I have to give a shout out to the, I don't even know what his official title is, but I'm going to call him the executive producer and the creator of Paparitaville.com, your number one source for all of your pop culture news, because he gave me this gamer headset and I get to embrace my inner nerd. It has like the the really good headphones that are noise canceling. And then I have my little like Madonna mic out in front of my mouth and that was a Christmas present for him. So I'm getting to use it for the first time on this. It's really exciting. It makes me feel very official. <laughs> good. And it sounds great. Yay. Good. I'm either like a super video gamer nerd or like a call center phone answer. <laughs> it's, it's, I'll send you a screenshot. <laughs> yes, please. So on Sophia the First, with being a couple years into the show now, I know you've sung a ton of songs on it, but what, are there any favorite things that you've sung? Oh, gosh. Um, one of the things that I do for the show, it's, it's so much different than working on Phineas and Ferb because on Phineas, I had the good fortune to be featured. Like you could actually you know, people will call and be like, Hey, I, I heard you on Phineas tonight with Sophia. I'm more in the background, which is a great place to be because I don't, I don't have to work alone by myself. And I'm not, you know, one of the things that I love doing on Phineas and which is challenging is I got to co-write the vocal arrangements with Danny Jacob. And then we would sing all the parts ourselves. Well, now we have, actual vocal parts written for us and we come in with a group and we sing them and it's just a, it's a different experience and it's wonderful but it's a little bit more on the the background side of things but one of the other things that I do for the show is uh, I work with the composer John Cavanaugh and we kind of produce a vocal demo for people like Ariel Winter and Darcy Rose Burns to learn from we kind of give them a learning track because you know their schedules are insane and a lot of times just like the rest of us we're learning things in the car on the road and you don't always have time to whip out the printed sheet music and so we kind of produce a demo vocal and then we send it off to them and they learn their songs from my voice and I get to do that for some other awesome people like Jody Benson, who inspired my entire voiceover career. If you don't know who that is, that's the voice of Ariel, the little mermaid. And to answer your question in a long roundabout way, I think the favorite thing that I've done for the show is pretending to be Megan Mullally because she comes in and guests on the show. I think she's done maybe three episodes. So I get to do my my Megan Mullally impression and send it off to her. <laughs> and it makes everyone laugh. So that's really fun because I love doing character voices. And she, is, she has such a unique, specific voice that happens to be one of those sound-alike voices that I can nail. So I have a lot of fun doing her. Nice. Do you ever get to hear one of the people that you've provided this track for them to practice to singing the song and you think I sang that just like that I remember when I kind of did that if it was something that was a little unique yeah, or distinctive absolutely I totally watched the show I have to watch the show as part of my my job because I you know keep track of when everything airs and who sings what on which episode and make sure it's all you know categorized correctly on IMDb which is 
a nightmare at times that those IMDb people, you'd be surprised what ends up on there because anybody can add anything they want. So I just keep an eye on that kind of stuff. And But yeah, I get to hear the final products and it's always great to, you know, because I don't usually get to go in and be at the sessions where they're actually singing because, you know, our schedules hardly ever match up and everyone's working on their own stuff. And so when I finally hear the, the finished product, it's always really awesome really cool feeling like oh yes I know this song I remember this song and they especially Megan she's such a wonderful performer and has done Broadway and is an excellent singer and she always pulls out all the stops oh fantastic I'm sure that must be a great feeling to to get to hear that and to get to do that kind of work it's fun it's I'm definitely living my dream yeah between that and the album that we'll talk about in a little while I I can only imagine yes now, you'd mentioned kind of in passing a bit before, and I had heard this too, that Phineas and Ferb is basically wrapped up. I think there's still more episodes to air, if I remember right, but the, the actual production of the show is basically done. The production of the show is, I just talked to Danny Jacob yesterday, I think, and we did our last, we, I say we, they did their last spot preview for the show ever. And I'm not sure because we don't get to know all the time what the airing schedule is like and the order of the list of the episodes. I mean, we have we have episode titles on our contracts that they change all the time between the time I go in and sing to the time it airs. So the the most up to date information I usually get is on Wikipedia (laughs) and there's an actual (laughs) like Phineas and Ferb Wikipedia page too, like a wiki site. But from what I know. We have two episodes left, and I don't know when they're going to air, but one of the last ones is, I think it's called Auka, O-W-C-A, and I sang a song on it called The Auka Files, and I belted, like, full chest voice, the highest note I've ever sung on television, ever. I think it was an F-sharp, which is kind of insane, so that was really exciting, and the song is really, really good. It's all about the organization without a cool acronym, OWCA, which is, you know, Major Monogram is the head of and Carl is his intern and that's what Perry works for. So there's mm-hmm. a there's talk of trying to see if the fans and what the response is and, you know, maybe seeing if something like that can be a spinoff. And it, you'll see when you watch the episode, it, it kind of airs like its own its own series. So it's, it's one of my favorite episodes that they've ever done. And everything that they pull out is always so creative and fresh. And, and Kenny Loggins sang a song on it from Footloose fame, which is a musical I've done three times, oddly enough, (laughs) playing the mom of Ariel. So weird, but yeah, so I can't wait to hear his work on that. I love Kenny Loggins. Me too. So there's that. And then there's an episode that I think is called the last day of summer. But again, Duh, don't quote me because I'm always saying things wrong and things are always changing. And, you know, the most up to date information is, again, usually on the Internet. <laughs> no one tells right. me anything. <laughs> so did you know when you were in for those last sessions that those were going to be the last sessions? Not at all. No, because we did. We recorded the Alka Files song, I think a year ago, two years ago. It was a long time ago. And the episode that just aired in February, 
it, it aired once in November, but it's like the, the last one that aired was actor age. And the one before that was do 401. We did that one a long time ago too. And that's like going to be one of the last episodes. And that I think was another potential to be a spinoff, but I don't, I don't know what's happening with all of that stuff where Dr. Doofenshmirtz is teaching uh, high school science (laughs) (laughs) and it was, it was fun. It was really fun. We had a couple different versions of the theme song that we wrote and well, I didn't write them, but I got to again, help with the writing of the vocal arrangements. And that's always one of my favorite things to do. So yeah, I didn't know at the time to answer your question because we do these things so long ago, like right now, we're working on season three of Sophia the first. And I think that the, the second season hasn't even finished airing yet. So it's kind of a weird time warp thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. I remember uh, since I've interviewed you, one of the other people that I talked to was Bill Farmer. Yes. Love him. <laughs> Goofy. Oh, yeah. He's so yeah. amazing. He really is. And one of the things we talked about real briefly was, whether he ever needs to go back and get kind of a reference for voices that he's done that aren't some of the standard ones, uh, you know, especially if they're not something that just drops naturally into his vocal pocket. Yeah. And uh, he was saying the same kind of thing about how long the process is that sometimes he'll do a voice and it might be six months or a year later that he has to come in and do a pickup scene or the next episode or something like that. And he needs them to show him part of what he had done. So he knows how he's supposed to sound when he does it again. Yeah. And they're all really so on top of it at Disney. They're, it's an amazing team of people. They, they have that kind of stuff in their, in their enchanted files. (laughs) I know when I was doing the voice match stuff for Tori Spelling and for Tiffany Thiessen, they would send me these really detailed little files and I would get like, four minutes of just them and their dialogue to be able to recreate from. So they're really accommodating and super sweet. And I love Bill. I, I have never worked with him in person, but we did a, a radio show. I think it's been a year now. And he was like the next guest on after me. So I just like got to wave to him from outside the booth. <laughs> like, <laughs> hi, I love you. I've, I've kind of worked with you at Disneyland because we have these character shows and you get to work with these characters every day and they're there in person. And, you know, it's like, I'm working with Goofy on stage and I'm Corella DeVille and Goofy's Goofy. And, you know, there's Bill Farmer in your ear every day. So it's, right. it's kind of a, a, a politely intimate thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very nice way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we talked about those shows when you were on before. Oof, there was, there has been a lot of them. <laughs> it was like, it was the best education you could ever ask for. People like Simon Cowell from American Idol get down on theme park performing, but that's where you really learn your instrument and your craft and you're thrown in front of audiences of, I'm not underestimating, but millions of people and you get to really learn what it's all about and it prepares you for the best and the worst. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. It's, it's, yeah, it was by far the best education because when I was graduating from high school, I was 15 years old and then I signed up for school right away and, you know, I won't get into my home life and my parents, because that's another story. But, you know, I was paying for myself and supporting myself through college. And 
the way I was doing that was by doing professional musical theater jobs and working at Disneyland, you know? And then I was finally, I was 16. I was the youngest cast member in the attractions department. I think we talked about this, but then when I was booking this work and I was getting jobs in the field that I wanted to be in, it's like, well, what do I choose? Do I choose like just going straight to work and what I love and, you know, trying to make all my dreams come true? Or do I go sit in a classroom and try and learn how to do it before I just go out and start auditioning but it was like it was the best education ever I think I learned more performing at Disneyland and the Disneyland Resort in front of all of those people and you know having to get a call and say okay you're doing a show tomorrow and you know you have no rehearsal and just you go and you do it and it was just it was unparalleled education especially when you consider all the the different people that watch you from all over the world. And you learn about reading audiences, especially if you're doing comedy, but that, that show with goofy was called Mickey's detective school. And it was the second show that went in after animazement in the fantasy land theater. And it was the best job ever because you were Corella DeVille and you came out and you spent three minutes on stage in a fur coat. And then you went off stage. It was a 25 minute show and you were on stage for three minutes. It was pretty great. Nice. Pretty great. Yeah, I'll take that. Yep. It was kind of a beast in the summer with that fur coat, but other than that, it was great. The sacrifices that you have to make for your craft. Oh, yes. Happy to be here. Easy to work with. You want me to wear a fur coat? You want me to wear a turkey on my head? I certainly will, which I did in Animazement. <laughs> That's right. You do remember that. I actually don't remember Goofy's Detective School, but I remember Animazement. Mickey's Detective School. There was there was Animazement. And then uh-huh. when the show closed in October of 2001, they put in, in the holidays, Minnie's Christmas Party. And then when Minnie's Christmas Party closed, they created Mickey's Detective School. And I think that ran for two or three years. Okay. Yeah, and that would have been just about the time that I was starting to go pretty regularly. I just apparently wasn't making it back there often enough. Yeah, I think the show cl- ended up closing in 2004 because that's when they, they closed Groove 66 and Chance to Shine and all of those atmosphere shows that they had put in at the beginning of Disney's California Adventure, which is now called Disney California Adventure. I kind of right. I missed that transition, so that's a, a very hard habit to break. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I digress. What else do you want to know? and it's nice i'm I'm sure you've at least heard that they're going back at least to some degree to some of that live entertainment there at the parks well Uh, i've loved you know the things that they put in at disney california adventure the five and dime show with the you know in carthay circle with the live musicians i love Something about seeing live musicians that actually play instruments, not that singers aren't musicians, that's another debate, but actual instrumentalists out on the street. I love that children are being exposed to that. It's so, it makes me so happy. I love seeing the Five and Dime show. There was the Mad Tea Party and there, which is coming back in May, we just found Mm -hmm. out. And then there was all the Frozen stuff, which has some instrumentalists too and you know, and Aladdin's still grow, going strong. So, oh yeah, that's been. I did that show open in two thousand one, two thousand two, I think. Somewhere in there, I know it was really early. It wasn't the first show, right? At, at the Hyperion Theater, Which I it loved. was about the third or so. I but. loved Steps in Time. You're exactly right. It was the third, if you count both versions of Steps in Time. 
I used to go there after my shift in the park and just watch Steps in Time because there were great vocalists in that, the main fairy godmother role of Vera. Eden Espinosa, I just, she was a friend of mine at the time. I just used to go in and well, listen to her sing because it was fun for me. You know, my friend Kenna Ramsey, who has done a ton of big stuff, you might remember her work in That Thing You Do. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, she was doing Group 66 with me and went on to do The Lion King and has tons of credits. And this was where a lot of people cut their teeth in the entertainment business. It's the best training ever. Yeah. With so many people and so many performances and the the demands on it and everything, it's got to be one of the most difficult jobs and at the same time in a lot of ways the most some of the most rewarding jobs to do this. absolutely you're thrown into every type of situation from having to like new year's eve we have to show up at midnight and sing in the freezing cold air until six o'clock in the morning and then be back that night at you know 7 p.m and your voice has to be in shape after singing all night in the freezing cold weather which as we saw from someone's new year's eve performance that isn't the easiest thing to do yeah so how do you prepare for something like that how do you take care of your voice in between those times uh, so that what you did the one night it doesn't destroy it for the next night it's all about conditioning it's just like training for the olympics If you are doing your scales and singing for a certain amount of time every single day and really keeping an eye on your instrument is a part of your body. So I know for myself, when I eat really clean and eliminate meat and eliminate dairy and eliminate alcohol and caffeine and just have no fun at all with my diet, I have (laughs) a, a larger vocal range. I have a half step on top extra and a half step on bottom extra so and there's certain songs i cannot sing without a g above high c you rarely use it but it's so nice when it's there anyway i digress so yeah you just said you really have to keep training and keep doing your exercises and not not push to an uncomfortable or a a pain or incorrect technically uh, but you have to really make sure that you extend your limits. I remember when I was doing Evita, which is one of the hardest female roles in musical theater history, I had to sing it eight shows a week for three months. And there has, I don't think there has been a production in history anywhere in the world where that happens because it's just like Phantom of the Opera. They hire someone to sing the matinees because it's just kind of physically impossible to do that many shows a week and get one day off and have to start doing it all over again. But I sang all of the shows and five of those shows because it was dinner theater at the Lawrence Welk theater of all places. It's a little bit uh, older of the age range. All Mm -hmm. the shows pretty much were matinees. We did five matinees a week and only three of the shows were evening shows. So it was really difficult, but there was a note that I couldn't sing in the score in Buenos Aires, I had to sing a low E, which is uh, at the time, you know, I was 10 years, nine years younger than I am now. And as you age, your range stretches and it changes as you age, especially in women. But I couldn't sing the note at the end of Buenos Aires. And so I had to push my range down. I had to do scales all the time, every day for months preparing for the show. I, Cause I think I found out about it like two months before I was able to 
actually start rehearsing, which was kind of a blessing because I had to start singing through the score a couple times every day and just get in shape. It really was like training for the Olympics, but in doing those scales and stretching down below that note that I couldn't hit and just keeping at it and keeping at it. It's like your vocal cords are, were stretched. They were finally, they finally did what I want them, wanted them to do. So <laughs> if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. That's a quote from my, one of my favorite movies. And which movie is that? Oh, come on. You don't know that. That's good advice, George. If you put your mind to it, you can. Oh, back to the future. (laughs) (laughs) You're not. You're coming to a rescue, dad, dad, daddy. Oh, I love that. I really do. And it's finally this year, October 21st, 2015. And we don't have to see all those silly memes with the wrong date on them. Yes, please. I've known every single one of them was wrong. Like, I've been waiting for this year. I'm like, come on, people. Uh Uh-huh. Remember when the sequel came out, though? Because so many years passed from the first movie to the second movie, and I was just, I was chomping at the bit to see the second movie, which some people didn't enjoy, eh, but I I love all of them. So, And they were filmed at the same time. Anyways, I could talk about that movie for a whole nother episode. If you haven't gotten the anniversary DVD set and watched all the special features, it's totally worth it. Any Back to the Future fans out there, I have all the DVD box sets that have ever come out. I think there have been two of them. I think you're right. We actually have both of them, too. Yay! And we will continue on but on the subject of movies, but quick backward digression a little bit <laughs> i think there was actually one extra show with the hyperion speaking of instruments there was oh, oh, the two yeah, animation yeah, yes. shows and then there's the power of blast yes, blast but i don't count blast because that was a contracted show that was oh okay that, i mean i mean it was a great show don't get me wrong yeah. no disrespect because those were amazing musicians i remember you know because that was right down the street from where group 66 took their breaks and i would go mm-hmm. around there and hang out with with those guys and you know just watch them practice because it's so meticulous. Any type of drum corps work. I, it was so fascinating to me, but that was not developed by the Walt Disney company, by Disney entertainment. That was, that was a separate hired out show. Yeah. That was from a spinoff, I guess you could say of the original blast show from, I think it's the star of Indiana drum and bugle corps. I think so. Yeah. Wow, I I totally forgot about those days. It's one of those cases where my hard drive is full, so I keep making extra room for things, and that's one of the things that got recycled. Yeah, so that was in between. Wasn't that in between Steps in Time and uh, Aladdin, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I never got to see the first Steps in Time. I wonder if there's a full version of it on YouTube. I've seen pieces of it with Eden Espinosa and Robbie Banner, two great friends of mine, singing and raising out of the floor as candlesticks in some sort of Beauty and the Beast tribute. But that's about all I saw of the first version. I heard the first version was spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, I think I only got to see the second one, but I hope there's a full version of the first one out there. I'll do my research. We'll be in touch. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) So on the subject of movies, uh, like I had mentioned in the intro, the last time we talked, uh, the movie Pitch Perfect was due out Mm -hmm. pretty soon. In fact, I looked it up and it came out like two weeks after the interview aired. Uh, I was a little late to the party, but my wife and I did finally watch it earlier this month. Oh, good. (laughs) And we really enjoyed it. I'm so glad. It did really well. It was kind of like, oh, by the way, here you go. Here's acapella. And it kind of catapulted that acapella revolution that just seems to have so had such a great takeoff which is it it makes me so happy because i've been 
an acapella nerd forever. And now there's mm-hmm. all these opportunities and a lot of corporate entertainment clients are like, we want that. So it's good for all my colleagues. We're having a great time. And I'm so happy that I'm part of the sequel in a very small way, but I was not called to do the original work that I did on the first one. Cause they had us come out to Louisiana, two of us to kind of get a base down of the arrangements so that they could hear what they sounded like. And then they could have like a little bit of a a pad in the soundtrack. And they had changes in the budget and changes in the plot. As you'll see, there's the world championships for the second one. And there's this group from Germany. So they needed people from Germany and, you know, girl beatboxers. And there was a different, different casting needs for this movie for this, the second one. So I didn't get to go to Louisiana and I was sad. And I'm like, you know what, this is just the business and you cannot be in the entertainment business unless you're ready to hear no every single day. Cause that's literally what happens. Literally. If you're not strong enough to just not let it bother you. And I had some experiences really recently where people just take things too personally and it's really bad for your career because there's so much competition and there's so many people that are doing it and trying to do it. But anyways, um, I got the call in December and they're like, we want you to come and work on the sequel. And I was like, it was so exciting because, you know, you kind of go through that whole process of like, it's okay. You're, you're still going to do okay. And then it's not the end of the world if you didn't get a job. And so I was really excited about it. I didn't do very much, but I still got to do something, which was great. I was honored just to be called. Absolutely. Uh, so what are you doing in this one? Or did you do as the case maybe? Well, uh, I was elated to work with Harvey Mason Jr., who, if you don't know who that is, Google him. He's multi-award winning, excellent producer, and he produced the first soundtrack also. But I never got to work with him because he didn't come to Louisiana. And that's part of his job is to come in at the end when everything is done. So once the film is completely shot and the soundtrack is completely recorded, which for the case of Pitch Perfect 1 and 2 is completely different soundtrack recording experience because it's all vocals. You know, there's no like, okay, today we're going to record the strings or today we're going to record the percussion. So um, once everything was done, we went into Harvey's studio and you watch the film and we go through all the pieces that they need to fix. And it's kind of like doing ADR for singers where, you know, if, if something didn't come out quite right, or if they want to change something, or if they need to bulk up one section, I know, I know there was like a, you know, that song, the Criss Cross song jump. There's a, a piece of that song in there where they just wanted the yelling to be a little more intense. So we just, we all had to, just scream jump for a good five minutes. <laughs> so that was fun. I'm like, yep, happy to be here. Easy to work with. Whatever you want me to do. Yep. No problem, sir. <laughs> so yeah, it's it looks really funny. I haven't seen all of it yet, but it's it's a lot of guys singing, which is awesome because who doesn't love a good, nice low bass, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a lot of a lot of surprises in the second one, and I'm looking forward to it being just as successful, if not more, because maybe maybe just maybe they'll make a third one. I think that would be awesome. But sounds good. The to first me. one did so well; we won the American Music Award for Best Soundtrack, which was great. And um, it just was yeah, total honor to be a part of. Could not have been happier to be involved with such a great project with such great people. 
That's wonderful. And I'm looking forward to the second one. Hopefully I get to see it a little sooner than how long it took me to see the first one. But um, no promises, but I will see. Well, <laughs> somebody's going to have a brand new addition to their family. So I'll forgive you if you get a little bit busy. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad my upcoming daughter is going to get me off the hook. Oh, many times. <laughs> Daddy's girl. You know, I have my daughter. Have you picked out a name yet? We have. Which is? Are you allowed to announce it? I am not. We're keeping oh! it a secret until she's born. <laughs> is it Marigold? No. I just like that name. <laughs> that is a pretty name. Okay, well, I will cross my fingers for when you announce it. Pitch Perfect 2, I think, is coming out on May 15th of this year. 5-15-15. What a great date. Yeah, it is. 5-1-5-1-5. Way to go. People are going to get married. A lot of people are going to get married. That's <laughs> easy to remember. Yeah. And then they can all go to see Pitch Perfect 2 as part of the reception. <laughs> I'm sure that will be higher than priorities. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe not a lot of them will do it, but maybe a few will. I want to spend this next section of the time here talking with you about kind of the main reason I wanted to set up this follow-up interview, which is your album, which I love and think is wonderful. Thank you. And so I want to give you a chance to tell a bunch more people about it. Right. So let's talk about one for my baby. Uh, first, why this album? I told this story last night and you know, I still don't know. It just came to me and the original concept for the album was totally different. I was going to call it plus one and every, because I play a few instruments and I wanted every single track to be me playing all the instruments and then pick one of my favorite musicians to play their instrument and either sing with me or just collaborate with me on the arrangements and play. And, and I, the first track that I recorded for that album was one for my baby with Vince Demura from New Jersey. He teaches at Princeton and he is probably one of my favorite pianists and best pianists I've ever heard in my life. He's unbelievably amazing. And it was a funny story how we met doing a Frank Sinatra tribute show. He wrote the, he didn't write the score, but he actually arranged the band, the instrumentation and did all the arrangements for the show. And we looked each other up and ended up communicating online. And I was able to get him because he was doing a show at the Laguna Playhouse when I was doing the pageant of the masters in Laguna beach. And we recorded this track and it came out. I thought it came out so great. And I've loved Frank Sinatra since I was a kid. And I had this experience with my eye where I had retinitis and basically a hole in my retina. And we had to go to the doctor all the time. And my mother had just gotten a new Frank Sinatra CD that had come out called The Best of the Capital Years, which is like the prime of his career. And I just became addicted to his music. And I started getting all of it that I could get my hands on because I, as a soprano, I had a, a voice that just sat naturally high. And Frank Sinatra and so many people from that time, golden age of music, Great American Songbook, there were so many great baritones. And the thing about baritone keys for songs, they work really well for sopranos. So I took to singing Frank's music because I could sing right along and it sat so comfortably in my range. And I just began to study how he would hold over notes and not take breaths where you would think that uh, your average singer would breathe and just you could understand every word he said and just the way he shaped his vowels. And I just kind of became obsessed with Frank Sinatra. And when I created my band in 2012, it was kind of a mishmash of genres. And 
with having my band, it afforded me to be able to meet some really amazing musicians in Los Angeles. I mean, people that you hear every single day on television, on jingles and movies and recording with huge artists. And they actually were cool with working with me. And they were so, it was so awesome that they all said yes when I asked them to be a part of my project. So in meeting all those musicians by having my band, I really got more into the jazz scene and getting to know the arrangers that are out there and working right now and doing such really great work on the jazz scene. And I decided to make it a big band album with strings and just go all Frank Sinatra because I knew all of the material already so well. And I had all these ideas in my head from the way that I was doing these songs already in my band. I'm like, I should just go all out and just do a Frank Sinatra album, which came with, you know, I, I got a review on one of the biggest jazz websites in the world came out yesterday and they say it's, it's a pretty ballsy undertaking. And I didn't really think about that until after it was too late. I'm like, you know what? There's going to be a lot of people that say, how dare you? You know, it's Frank Sinatra. How dare you attempt to, you know, and it's more of a, it's, that's why I called it to one for my baby to Frank Sinatra with love, because my intention was to just keep his music alive. And you know, it's it's funny that the whole acapella thing is kind of taking back off again. And you see that in the jazz world. I mean, look at Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga, who just won the Grammy for their collaboration. Everybody who's anybody is doing a jazz album. You know, Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan just did a Frank Sinatra record. All these people are turning to jazz because it's timeless music. And I think that my goal with this record was just to get it out this classic repertoire to the younger people out there in the world, which I feel like humbly I'm the perfect person to do because all my fans are like nine years old from the cartoons. <laughs> right. So it's kind of like my little scheme to keep jazz going and alive. And, you know, if, if I can get these people that are, <laughs> that are such big fans of the, all the Disney channel shows, which I've had some experiences already where people are telling me that their kids love the album and, the, and their kids are singing the tender trap, which is a movie from the late forties or the early fifties. I don't remember the exact um, year, but it's like, that's a classic song that you're never going to hear today on the radio. And these kids are in love with it. So I kind of feel a little bit like it's, partly mission accomplished. So that's the long story about deciding to do that project that way. It was kind of a roundabout way to get to it. And I kind of stumbled upon it and got in a little bit too deep before I actually understood what I was doing. And so it all worked out for the best. And today I heard that I am in the top five in Hartford, Connecticut being played on the radio. So that wow. was exciting. It's number one is Diana Krall and another guy I'm a big fan of, Steve Tyrell, and I'm right there at number five. So that was really exciting news today. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. And in fact, congratulations on the release of the album itself, too. Thank That's you no very small much. Undertaking. Thank you. It's a lot of time and effort and a lot of money to do a big band album because there's so many musicians. And I had strings, too, so I couldn't have done it without my my Disney channel team and all of the 
the funds came from those shows because I did not do a Kickstarter because I didn't believe in that. I'm happy to support other people with crowdfunding, but I was really adamant about, you know, paying for everything myself and producing everything myself and just making sure it was right and putting all of my efforts into it. It was really a labor of love. Well, that's an incredible level of commitment and it really speaks volumes to how much you care about this project. Thank you, sir. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> You're welcome. And believe me, I'm all for anything that can keep or get back uh, big band and jazz into the public eye and the public interest. That's my favorite kind of music. Me too. I mean, look at Michael Buble. He's a mad success and he plays these huge sold out concerts and he's doing exactly what we're trying to do. So I'm just, he's one of my favorite artists and I have so much respect for what he's doing. So I'm hoping that there's going to be a a trend of more people like Michael Bublé. I feel like Adina Menzel is doing that a little bit too. If she had a Christmas album that came out, which was produced by Walter Afanasieff, who was instrumental in helping Mariah Carey and writing a lot of her material too. I'm a big fan of his. So I really enjoyed Adina's uh, holiday CD, what Walter did on it. Their arrangements are excellent, but I'm hoping that we see a, a resurgence of that type of music. Yeah. Besides, uh, Sinatra. Do you have any favorite, like say, let's say favorite big bands from the classic era of the, you know, the forties or so? Oh, I mean, you say besides Sinatra, but I love Tommy Dorsey cause that's where mm -hmm. he started. Um, one of the first big bands, probably the first big band I ever heard was a Glenn Miller big band. Yeah. And I had a, a kind of compilation big band CD and it was a lot of Glenn Miller music. So I probably have to say Glenn Miller just because it was the first experience I had into it. Yeah. The first, a lot of times tends to become a favorite and that's, that is a good favorite to have if I do say so myself. Very classic. <laughs> yeah. Now with your album, how did you choose which songs were going to go on it? Did it end up being the ones that you knew the best and had been performing the most or did you go through another process? It's a really good question. Um, part of it came from the Frank Sinatra tribute show that I did in Sacramento where I met Vince DeMura. And part of the repertoire came from the songs that I sung in that show just because I I fell in love with singing them eight shows a week for three months. <laughs> There's a lot of eight shows a week, three month runs around California. Um, but yeah, I sang You Go to My Head in that show. And uh, my good friend Carol Foreman sang Guess I'll Hang My Tears Out to Dry, but I really got to know the material and have fun with it and play around with it, doing a, a regular running musical show, and I got to sing it in front of live people. And then I just picked, I picked my favorite songs of his, like Come Fly With Me. That's one of the greatest songs ever, just the imagery that it puts into your mind, like come on, let's get on a plane and go to Acapulco and take a honeymoon. I'm like, yes, where is, where is my husband? Let's go. Let's get on a plane. You know, so a lot of the songs of that time and Frank's songs, the lyric, first of all, you could understand what he was saying. So it kind of creates these pictures in your head. Like if you listen to the tender trap, it's about, you know, a guy getting kind of trapped, if you will, by love, you know, and by marriage. I, do you see this this whole single marriage kick that I'm on these days? I am sensing a bit of a theme, yeah. <laughs> is anyone, I thought it was just being very perceptive. Is anyone 
out there listening that wants to marry me. So yeah, um, I've had I had a good time picking the songs, and I had even more of a good time deciding which arrangers and which versions of the songs and co-arranging everything. So that was just as fun, if not more fun, than picking the actual songs. Tell me a little bit about arranging, because we talked about it even last time you were on, and you've mentioned it a few times here, and I'm a very at least in this respect, non-creative kind of person. Like I hear a song and to me, that's the way the song sounds. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really have a grasp of how someone hears a song and thinks, you know, I think I would want to do it this other way. Or I think that this group of people, a mix of instruments and singers, whatever, we could do this other thing with the same song. It's kind of a vague, broad question, but I don't know how to, narrow it down anymore then tell me about arranging and kind of how that works what it's like I will give you a perfect example and it's a little bit of a homework assignment for you and and all the listeners out there I wanted in tributing Frank Sinatra I wanted to do some of his original arrangements so if you listen to here's to the losers on my record that is Frank Sinatra's original Marty Page arrangement, who is a fantastic arranger. And if you don't know who he is, he's David Page of Toto, his father. So okay. if you listen to my version of Here to, Here's to the Losers, it's really Frank Sinatra's version, like the real version. The horns play the exact same notes in the exact same form and measures and time. And it's it's like a cookie cutter of the song but recorded with the musicians of today instead of the musicians in the fifties. So that's a good like experiment to, as like an intro to arranging. Cause you'll, you'll understand it's, it's the same exact arrangement. Then you can take it even a step further. And I love, love Nelson Riddle who did so many arrangements for Sinatra and one of his main arrangers. And he was also a fantastic trombone player. And my, Main arranger Jim McMillan is also a fantastic trombone player. Um, something about trombonists and arrangers, I tell you, magic, <laughs> magic, magic, magic combination. So if you listen to my version of the Tender Trap, I talked to Jim McMillan and we collaborated on this arrangement. And I like sang the horn parts into the phone to him. And I'm like, I want it like this, but like I wanted to do. Frank Sinatra's original Nelson Riddle arrangement as if Tower of Power had played it, which is another one of my favorite bands. This is like hard hitting funk from Oakland. Mm -hmm. So you can hear that the horns play the same notes and the same line. It's just in a different rhythm. So like Frank's version is kind of swung and mine is like straight and a little bit funkified. So that's another kind of like experiment you can do at home where like, okay, the saxes are playing the exact same thing, just in a kind of a different way. So it's arranging can be really, really involved for like someone like me who was producing the project and being the main artist, which I, I see a lot of people doing these days because it's great to be able to have control over your own product and be able to do exactly what you want and to hear something in your head and make it come true, like make all your dreams come true. But you can either be really hands-on and 
be super type A and detail oriented like I am, or you can be, here you go. Here, you're hired. Please do this arrangement for me. Here's your money and go have fun with it and do whatever you want. And I, I had a nice mixture of both of those because one of my things that I'm considerate of that not a lot of people are, I never want to put musicians into a box. And I feel like we get a lot better product in the music business when people feel creatively satisfied. So for me to take uh, an arrangement request to someone in the jazz world that's as wonderful and is one of my mentors, Gordon Goodwin, and to come to him and say, I want you to create something with this. I think that they get a little bit more excited about something that they feel they can put their own stamp on. So I wanted to enable them to do their best work too. Yeah, I'm sure being given that freedom is really important to the process. That, that was a good answer for uh, kind of an introduction to arranging. And it brought up another question along those lines. When you are coming up with a different arrangement for a song, you know you want to do something different. Do you kind of hear in your your head, this is how I want it to sound, and then you create it from that? Or you're not so much this how I want it to sound. Like one option or one way I think of it might be, you know, I hear it differently. I this I hear it the way it's being performed, but in my head, I also hear it this different way. And I just have to get it out of my head and onto the paper and then have musicians do it. Yeah. And a lot of times the way I do that is singing it because I always have my instrument with me, you know, like I don't have to haul my banjo on my back. And if I don't have a banjo with me, I can't, you know, play what I want to hear. But yeah, that's convenient. It's, it's, it's cool because you can change things on the spot and just sing it to them and they'll play it right back to you, you know? So it's kind of a luxury always having your instrument with you. And that's how I communicate with a lot of my arrangers, you know, all because I've been doing acapella and vocal arrangements for so long, it's easier and faster for me sometimes to do what we do in acapella and just fire up my computer and do my own little recording session where I sing the horn lines and I'll sing the guitar lines like as a guitar or as a saxophone or as a trumpet. And I have some interesting <laughs> mock-ups, we call them, that I just send off to my arranger and then he translates it all into paper and ink, which I love doing. And it's so therapeutic, you know, sitting and writing things out by hand. But a lot of things are done by computer now and because it's a lot faster. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, with my schedule, I, I don't always have time to spend hours upon hours with, you know, pencil and paper or the finale or Sibelius program. So that's kind of how it works. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up a bit. Yeah. See, it all goes back to acapella. <laughs> yeah. That's how music started. That's right. That's yeah, exactly right. singing first. So. Uh, so on your album, were there any songs that you had to leave out that you wish you could have squeezed onto it? That's a great question. And I didn't realize that there were songs.
That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Laura Dickinson for being my guest again, and to you for listening. I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Choose from titles like my book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom. You can pick that one or any of the 150,000-plus audiobooks as your free trial book, and it's yours to keep whether you choose to continue the membership or not. To download your free audiobook today, go to storiesofthemagic.com audible. Again, that's storiesofthemagic.com audible for your free audiobook. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, maybe you've written a book, created a website, or you're blogging, writing or performing music, art, whatever it may be, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience, and you've had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or had any special experience that you want to share, or give a compliment or thank you for anything that Disney's done, I'd love to hear from you, too. In fact, maybe you saw Laura perform in one of the shows, or you just remember seeing one of the shows that we talked about, or you've heard her on Phineas and Ferb or Sophia the First, and you want to call in and share a story about that, or just give her a thank you for what she's done on those shows or any of the in-park stuff. Those would be great reasons to call in or write in, too. For any of these, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, like the link to purchase Laura's new CD on Amazon or iTunes. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening, or pin it on Pinterest. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic, too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line 734-23-STORY and don't forget to visit the website storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments thank you so much for listening and remember live your dreams and make the magic in your world <laughs>